Welcome to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife with Connie and Barry Strom. Your hosts are here to speak the words of the spirits and answer your questions. Now, here are Connie and Barry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife. I'm Barry Strom, your host, and I'm going to be using my gift to spirit communication to spread your knowledge of the afterlife to anyone that's willing to open their minds and listen. And I'm Connie Strom, your co-host. Today, we'll be investigating three famous mysteries by speaking with the spirits of individuals involved in those incidents. Our first interview will be with one of the victims of Jack the Ripper. The second segment will solve what happened in Russia when nine hikers were mysteriously killed in Dilatov Pass. And the third segment, we will channel with the co-pilot of the Malaysian Flight 370, and you will find out, finally, what truly happened. Okay, we will not be taking calls today in the third segment of the show. And because of the nature of our information, we want to make everyone aware of our disclaimer. The opinions or statements voiced on the show do not reflect the opinions of Voice American Network, our so Elves, the host, obviously, or the sponsors. All of our shows are available on our YouTube channel. It's in the name of Barry Strom, where we have almost 420 videos these days. All of our iCarves are available on the Voice America Variety Network. Please tell your friends about our show. We think they might thank you for it. Okay, let's get started on this. From August 7th to September 10th in 1888, a killing spree took place in London's East End, in which at least and possibly as many as nine prostitutes were killed in a hideous fashion. The murders took place in a very poor area of the city. Now, in those days, for many women, prostitution was the only way to earn a living, and violence towards them was very common and rarely reported. The killer would begin by strangling the women from behind. Generally, the women were drunk. He'd lower them to the ground. He would cut their throats, rip open the body cavity, and remove an organ as a trophy. The violence generated a lot of publicity, which was incredibly unusual for those days. Scotland Yard interviewed hundreds of suspects, but could not solve the crime. The murders mysteriously stopped in the fall of 1888 and there was never any definitive answer to who committed the crimes. Now, one of his victims' names was Mary Ann Nichols. She was killed on August the 31st, 1888. Now, the guides have brought her forward so that we can speak with her, and we're going to just find out a little bit about what truly happened with Jack the Ripper. Mary Ann, thank you for joining us. I know this is not the most fun project. Uh, What was life like in the White Castle section of East London in 1888? Life in those days was incredibly difficult in London. Keep in mind that most people in government didn't really care about us. There was no social programs. We were... Everyone basically had to shift for themselves. It was an older section of the town. It was very dark. And we basically had to do what, whatever we needed to do in order to, to survive. 
What did the British people think of prostitution at this time? The people understood that prostitution was actually a necessity. There was no other way we could earn a living. If if your husband died, there was practically nothing. You had to move in with your family if they could afford it. As long as the general public was not affected by prostitution, the police allowed it. Lord knows they took their own their own choices to participate in it. We had to be protected, and if you didn't give it up for the cops, there was no way that uh, you could really exist. Will you tell us what happened on that terrible night? I was I was standing on the street trying to look for, for someone to participate. This individual came along. Now, I had, I had seen him before, but never talked to him. He asked if I would like to join him. And we walked for quite a distance till we found a, a pub, went in. We drank. And we decided that we would go back to my flat. I had a bit too much, no question about that. We came out, and as we said, we had walked a ways to find this pub, so we had a ways to go to come back. He led me through a dark, some dark streets, and the next thing I knew, he had his hand over my mouth, and... He was moving his other hand to my throat. He started to squeeze it. And he took his other hand and started to choke me from behind. I started to become unconscious. And that was, that was the last thing that I remembered from, my, from that lifetime. Did you ever know his name? He told me just simply to call him John, that it wasn't necessary to go any further, that we weren't going to be in love or anything, that we were just simply going to have, have sex. He, he just simply was nondescript, but he was very friendly. I had no suspicions. What did you see as your soul left your body? Well, as he continued to choke me, I lost consciousness. And then, all of a sudden, I was looking down at him. I could see he was on the ground, and I could see that, that he was still had his hands on my throat. I watched as he reached under his coat and pulled out a knife. I, I watched as he cut my throat and I watched as he ripped my clothes open and then did terrible things with the knife. At that point, my family members were coming towards me. And as I looked up and they said, let us take you out of this place. And they took me. And 
I entered heaven. I was very, very upset. My family members tried to call me to tell me that everything was fine now, that there was no pain, that it was all gone. It was, it was a very, very traumatic experience for my soul. And there are times that it still bothers me. Keep in mind over here in heaven, there are no, there is no time. So it is, it is sometimes just like it happened yesterday. I did not go back. I stayed over in the heaven dimension. I did not want to relive those moments. It was, it was a terrible, terrible time for me. Were you, did you actually leave your, your soul left your body before you actually felt the physical pain that that man was putting on it? No, I felt the pain. Oh, you did? As soon as he started choking me, I, I, I felt the pain. I couldn't breathe. I was, I was suffocating. And all of a sudden, thankfully, everything went dark. No, it, it was a terrible, terrible experience. This was a truly evil man. Absolutely. Okay. Let me thank you so much for that information and for coming forward for us. Marianne, I know that... Uh, your nickname was Polly in life, they tell me. So thank you. Thank you for telling us your story. Now what we're going to do to hear the rest of this, since obviously once her soul left her body, she didn't know any of the other details, and I certainly can't blame her for checking on them. So we have a master guide named Laura. You've heard us on multiple shows speaking with her. She knows almost everything. So we're going to go to Laura now, and we're going to ask her a few questions to fill in the details of what happened with Jack the Ripper. Hey, Connie. Good morning, Lauren. Thank you for joining us for this. Um, what was the occupation of the killer? The individual known as Jack the Ripper was actually a butcher turned undertaker. In those days, Burials were much different. Sometimes there wasn't much that an individual would do. They would just uh, bury them in, a, in London. But an undertaker had a knowledge of the internals of the human body. So he was, he was quite qualified to do the hideous crimes that he did. How many victims were killed by the Ripper? There were crimes committed before August of 1888. Jack the Ripper was actually responsible for nine killings. Why did the crimes end in such a short period of time? The killings got an awful lot of publicity in the newspaper, which was very unusual, but violence was so was so great in the White Castle area of London. Scotland Yard responded by pulling in as many people as they could to speak with them. 
keep in mind in those days, it was before there was DNA evidence, fingerprints. Modern technologies did not apply. And if a crime was not observed, the odds were pretty good that it was not going to be solved. The killer was very careful to take his victims into very dark areas. Lighting was almost non-existent in that portion of town. So the crimes were carried out in the dark. There were never any witnesses. So it was, it was just a very, very, very difficult time. The killer was actually called in and interviewed by the police. It was a short interview. The police did not suspect him in any way. But the killer realized that the possibility was there, that some that the police would, would realize who they were speaking with. So he fled London. He actually goes over to France and lives in Paris. He became ill. I know he had, he had plans to kill more people, basically a fresh start in Paris, because there were also very poor areas of that town at the time. So he goes over to Paris, rents a, a flat, and that's the last that London hears of him. Did he ever actually commit any murders in France? He did actually commit one murder in France. He was not caught for it, and he was not charged, obviously. He became ill, and he found that He was probably going to die. So he never spoke of the murders in France. He had had the, the, the reason that he had killed these prostitutes was that he was impotent and could not have sex. He blamed it on the women. He thought that all prostitutes were bad. He decided that he would take out his own infirmities on these poor women. He was very popular in his neighborhood, which was not that far from where the killings took place. Keep in mind also in those days that people didn't travel great distances. So he lived probably two miles away from White Castle, but his business was even further away. He, he lived in the country. As I said, he, or as Polly said, he was just a, simply a normal individual. 
except for the fact that he was demented. I would point out that there were many people in those days that conducted crimes that never got caught. The times were were very difficult to live in. If you wanted to conduct a crime, it was really not that difficult. Scotland Yard was the agency in England that would take up crimes. But basically, if you were a prostitute, you were fair game. There was so much violence against them. The poor women had no choices. There was actually no way for them to find employment. Keep in mind in those days that women were not as educated. They were just starting to become educated. They had very little rights under the British government. They were the prostitutes were definitely the victims of the time. They lived difficult lives. He took advantage of that fact. When he returned to this side, he was judged extremely harshly and sent to the lowest level for the terrible things that he did. So that is why we have allowed you to speak with victims, but not with the murderer himself. He will have much to do in the future. What was his name? His name was John Seymour. Now, I know that name does not apply in many of the writings, but he was, as the victim said, or as Laura said, or as I said, (laughs) that he was interviewed by the police. It petrified him. He felt he had a chance to be, to be caught and fled to another country. And that is why there's never been a name or an end to, or a solution to the crime of Jack the Ripper. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening to us. It's time to take a short break. We'll be back in two minutes, and we're going to channel the answer to the diet love past deaths. Thank you. Connie and Barry will be back after a few words from our sponsors. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Is death the end of the journey of the soul or a time of new beginnings? Is there proof of an afterlife? What would historic figures say if they lived today? Psychic and channeler Barry Strom uses his gift of spirit communication to answer these questions and explore all aspects of the hereafter. Have all the information necessary not to fear life's final journey. Tune in to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife with Connie and Barry Strom. 
Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Psychic and author Barry Strom has now published nine books dealing with supernatural subject from ghosts to aliens. His most recent books, Messages of God and Messages of the Prophet Muhammad for a Modern World, bring you the channeled messages of the founders of Christianity and Islam. Their words are intended to guide their followers through these modern times. These books are available in softcover and ebook on Amazon.com. Signed copies of all of Strom's books are available on his website, www.barrystrom.com. Welcome back to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife. Here are your hosts, Connie and Barry Strom. Okay, welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the, the previous segment. If you're listening, you now know the name of Jack the Ripper. So this is the next mystery that we're going to speak about. It's not as well known as, as many of them are, but it's called the Daitlov Pass Incident. Between February 1st and 2nd in 1959, nine Soviet trekking hikers from the Ural Polytechnical Institute died under very unusual circumstances. All the individuals involved were highly trained, very well-qualified outdoorsmen, and there were two women as well. They were all in perfect shape. It was a very, very difficult journey they were on, but they were, they were some of the best. Now, with the storm coming on and in below zero temperatures coming, they pitched their camp. And put the and set up their tents. Overnight, something caused them to cut their way out of the tents from the inside, flee the area, and many of them had on no boots, no shoes, no clothes, were simply in their underwear in sub zero temperatures. Something petrified them. When their bodies were found, six of them had died from hypothermia. Well, the other three were killed from physical trauma. One victim had major skull damage. Two of the bodies had missing eyes. One had a missing tongue. And one even had missing eyebrows. Some members of the group had burns, a strange coloration of the skin, and even traces of radiation. The group was organized and headed by Igor Daitlov. They named the pass after him, sadly. He was a 23-year-old radio engineering student. Now, our guides are going to make it possible for us to speak with Igor and find out exactly what happened. So, Connie? Yeah. Igor, welcome. I, we appreciate your coming through for us and for our listeners. 
Why did you organize such a dangerous expedition? We were all trying to get certified as guides. In order to do that in Russia at the time, you had to t- you had to do these type of journeys. We did not really consider it as very dangerous. We were all backcountry skiers. We had we were all in top physical condition. We knew exactly what we were doing. So when I put together the group of ten, I didn't really think that it was that dangerous. Would you tell us about those people that you chose to be part of the expedition? Most of them were students at the at the Polytechnical Institute. We had camped with most of them. We were very careful about their qualifications. We knew that it was going to be a difficult journey. We knew the temperatures were going to be bitter cold. We knew that we would be running into storms. It was, they were, they were the best. I had no doubt that the, that the journey would be very safe for us. You absolutely were not a bunch of wimps, that's for sure. Uh, tell us about the beginning of the journey. The journey started out just as we anticipated. The first day we, had, we did not have problems. We were on our cross-country skis. We had our backpacks. We had brought, we were going to be going to the peak of this mountain, and then we were going to return. We actually had extra food that we stored, that we left behind, figuring that we would be eating this, and we did want it to be as light as possible as we tried, as, as we proceeded on this journey. We knew that it was going to take us well over a week. Everything started out normally. We had a camera with us. We took photographs of the group. A snowstorm came in, and we could tell the temperature was going to be dropping. We actually became disoriented and took a wrong trail, and we realized that we were not where we wanted to be at that time. So I, it was not a steep area. We checked around the area, felt that it would be safe from any type of avalanche or danger. And we chose this area to pitch our tents. We had our meal. We went in. We all went into our tents. The storm came in and it was very nasty outside, and we went to sleep, and we t- thought that everything was normal. Was there any avalanche danger in the area where you chose to camp? No. No, we had actually scouted the area as best we could in the snow, but it was not that steep. We felt that it would be much better to camp where we were and let the storm pass so that we could go back, get on the proper route. We did not want to give up the elevation that we had climbed during the day. When you're in back country like this, every vertical foot that you climb 
is something that you don't want to do to- do twice. I certainly understand that, having hiked myself in the mountains here in Utah. Uh, what happened? Did you cut through the inside of your tents to escape without boots and clothing? We were all asleep in our tents, and all of a sudden, we heard this strange noise outside. Now, keep in mind, in these days, the military would conduct tests in this relatively isolated area of of Siberia. We thought at first that this strange noise we heard might be the military doing an on and Bounce test and that we had chosen a bad spot. As the sounds grew louder, we could see a strange orange glow outside. I looked outside of the tent and I literally could not believe what I was seeing. This strange vehicle had landed on the side of the mountain. And it was emitting this glow. And there were strange creatures. I looked and I could never, I never saw anything like it. My friends were now waking up as well and were looking out of their tent. And the girls started to scream when they saw the figures. We, we closed the tent. There were, the figures were very, very difficult to describe. It looked like a large reptilian. It looked like there was a large spider there of all things. We went to the back of the tents. Everyone was screaming and, t- and, and terrified. We cut the back of the tents so that we could escape. We ran. We didn't take time to put our clothes on. Some ran one direction, some ran the others. It was freezing, sub-freezing cold. It was terrible. But we were just simply petrified of what we had seen. Okay, several of the bodies were killed by blunt force trauma, equivalent to the forces of an automobile accident. What happened to those people? Those people, those people were killed by the figures that were pursuing us. They seemed to glide across the snow. They had, they had energies that we had never seen before. Three of us broke off from the group, and those individuals were killed after we left the group. Hey, some of the bodies were mutilated, eyes removed, tongue removed. Why did this take place? Now that I'm on the other side, I understand. But at the time, we were just simply petrified and running. The 
it was an attempt at an alien abduction that went bad. We were not supposed to have been conscious at the time that the alien ship arrived. They had messed up. And as I learned when I returned, they took samples of the bodies since they were not able to do a live abduction. You died of hypothermia. What did you think as your soul was leaving your body? I was so petrified at the time that once my soul was outside of my body, I understood everything was calm. My family members were coming to get me, and they said, come with us. We entered heaven, and everything was peaceful. Once I left my body, the last thing I wanted to do was return to see what was taking place. It was, it was a terrifying thing for us. I'm sorry you had to go through that. Okay, Igor, thank you so much for that. We appreciate uh, you telling us about what you knew. So last week we did a show on aliens, and we had a blue alien come in for us that we spoke to. He told us that his name was so difficult that we had no chance to pronounce it, and that we were just supposed to call him Fred. Now, we have told, been told many things in the past about alien abductions. And what we're hearing here is very, very opposite from the things that we were told. So I'm going to ask Laura if we can speak to Fred once more. I know we were told that, Fred, that abductions are carefully controlled. So I'd like to go back to the guest we had last week, Fred, and ask him a few questions so we can clarify a few things. Fred, thanks for coming back. Uh, could you explain what happened? You know, we we were told that there are rules against such actions. Keep in mind that this was in the 1950s. This was a time where there were rules about abductions, but they were not nearly as strict as they are today. This abduction was supposed to take place the people were in an isolated place that no one could possibly see it the individuals were very good physical examples of humans at the time and it was decided that that we would abduct them as a group study their physical capabilities and return them and they would never ever know what had taken place during the night sadly the people messed up they did not manage to make the people into a state where they would have no memory the individuals saw the extraterrestrials and yes if you're not used to seeing us we can be a very frightening sight once the individuals ran 
from the abductors, they made very difficult choices. They were they knew that what they were doing was secretive. The governments had agreed to allow the aliens to do these studies, and they panicked. Many, as they, you're told, six of the people died from hypothermia. But they feared that some of them were going to survive, and they took actions they were forbidden to take. They used their abilities to kill the individuals and to take bodily samples. This was against the rules. This was not something that was to take place. This was a very, very unfortunate accident. What happened to the aliens that conducted that failed abduction? It was against the rules that they were given. They were ordered to return to their home planet, and they were forbidden to travel to Earth. They were taken away from the unit that was allowed to do abductions, and they were generally penalized as such. So they used that force just out of panic? Basically, that is what took place. They felt that some of the individuals might survive, and they knew that they were under an order of secrecy. And once they had everything screwed up, they felt that this was the only thing that they could do to hide it. Is there any possibility that this might happen again? As a result of what took place at Dytlov Pass, the regulations of what extraterrestrials could do at visiting Earth were changed. They were told that under no circumstances were humans to be killed in such a manner. Under no circumstances was such violence to take place. That abductions had to be approved and that the technologies had to be approved as well so that they could not fail in what they were doing. So while it's always possible that such a thing could happen, mistakes do take place. And abductions are continuing at this, de- at this time. But the rules have been changed, and it is much less probable that this could ever take place again. Okay, folks. <laughs> that one is a little hard to believe, but that, that is what we are told. So we need to take a short break again. When we come back, we'll investigate what happened to Malaysian Flight 370. We will be channeling with the flight co-pilot, and he will tell us what took place. Thank you. Connie and Barry will be back after a few words from our sponsors. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. 
psychic and author Barry Strom has now published nine books dealing with supernatural subject from ghosts to aliens. His most recent books, Messages of God and Messages of the Prophet Muhammad for a Modern World, bring you the channeled messages of the founders of Christianity and Islam. Their words are intended to guide their followers through these modern times. These books are available in softcover and ebook on Amazon.com. Signed copies of all of Strom's books are available on his website, www.barrystrom.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Is death the end of the journey of the soul or a time of new beginnings? Is there proof of an afterlife? What would historic figures say if they lived today? Psychic and channeler Barry Strom uses his gift of spirit communication to answer these questions and explore all aspects of the hereafter. Have all the information necessary not to fear life's final journey. Tune in to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife with Connie and Barry Strom. Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife. Have a question for Barry or their guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, welcome back. It's time for us to speak about the Malaysian Flight 370. On March 8, 2014, Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 took off from Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia, heading for its planned destination of Beijing, China. On board was a crew of 12 and 227 passengers. Its last communications was 38 minutes into the flight. It lost radar contact 200 miles northwest of Penang Island in northwestern peninsular Malaysia and was never heard from again. The tracking devices were turned off. Later, much later, several pieces of debris washed up ashore in the western Indian Ocean and that was between 2015 and 16. For three years, the most expensive search ever conducted took place. The captain, captain of the flight was Mr. Zarahiri, who was an experienced pilot. Now, coincidentally, his wife and children moved out of the family home the day before the flight, and his wife told him that she was leaving him. The co-pilot was 27-year-old Fakiri Abdul Hamid. Now, we will be channeling with his spirit to find out what happened on the flight. So, Mr. Hamid, thank you for coming through to tell us this story. Connie? I'd also like to thank you, sir. Uh, When you went to the airport the morning of the flight, did you think there were any problems? No, the weather was fine. I did not anticipate any problems. I was new at being 
a co-pilot on a triple seven, but I knew that Mr. Zahiri was very, very experienced pilot. He, the flight was, was full. I had been with many of the members of the crew before. I saw no reason why there was going to be any problems. What was Mr. Zahiri's mood that morning? He appeared troubled. He did not speak a lot. He was very quiet. He went through all of the checkout procedures. He was not... Generally, a pilot will go back with the crew and spend time with them, but he basically got into the pilot's seat and communicated where he had to, but he was very silent that day. I didn't realize what his personality generally was. I just simply thought that maybe this was, maybe this was the general personality of the man. He answered my questions. We went through all of the procedures, but there was no tip off that he was as troubled as he was. Was he attempting to hijack the airplane? He he did hijack the airplane. He he waited until I made final contact. He knew that we would be out of communication range for a while. And he did take advantage of that. How did he go about getting you out of the cockpit? He said that he was was not feeling well and asked if I would go back and get him a cup of coffee and make sure that everything was going well with the crew. When I got up to leave, he put on his oxygen mask as was required when the co-pilot is out of the, out of the cockpit. I went back into the plane and he closed the door behind me as was regulation. I got back, I got his cup of coffee, returned, and the door was locked. I knocked on the door, and there was, there was no, he did not open the door for me. He had locked me out of the cockpit. We beat on the door, we tried to talk to him, but all of a sudden, I became aware that the plane was increasing its altitude and was beginning to make a turn. I knew that that was not in the flight plan. We tried to beat down the door, but all of a sudden, the oxygen mass dropped out of the ceiling compartments. It was not long until I lost consciousness. 
Did the pilot kill everyone on the plane except himself? Yes. It does not, when the oxygen, when the plane loses its oxygen, it becomes very cold immediately. And it is only a matter of moments before individuals cannot breathe. And within minutes, everyone in the plane was dead. After your soul left your body, what took place? After my soul left my body, I was aware that everyone, as I looked down, I saw that everyone was laying over in their seats. The crew members were on the floor of the plane. It was, it was a very, very difficult thing. So do you know what happened to the plane? After I got up in the earth, I realized that they had had a collision with another vehicle. Okay. Thank you so much. Once again, we're going to turn to Fred and see what that other vehicle was. So, Laura, can we have Fred? Hi again, Fred. Thank you. Can you tell us what happened to the airplane after everybody died? The plane was flying towards a very, very isolated area of the Indian Ocean and south. It flew. The pilot had put his oxygen on. His intent was that he was going to fly the plane with all the the dead bodies and crash it into the ocean. Now, if you've listened to any of our alien channelings, you know that we have motherships that are impossible to be seen. We park them over isolated areas such as the Southern Indian Ocean, where there are no flight plan where there are no flights scheduled and where they are relatively safe from being impacted. Sadly the pilot did not realize that we had one of our motherships in the area. And as he flew south he actually collided with the ship. Now the ship has the ability to protect themselves and put up shields and they saw him coming. And once he collided with the ship, the pieces of the airplane went into the ocean. Since this is not something that can be talked about, the aliens made sure that they cleaned up much of the debris and they assured that neither the bodies nor the ship would ever be recovered. They did a fine job. Um, So he, the pilot flew into the vehicle because he was not able to see it. Yes. They can, they, they have the ability to make these large ships impossible for humans to see. Hey, could you give us some more descriptions of that ship? That ship was relatively large. It was about four miles in diameter. It was it was stationed there so that the ships from our base in Antarctica would have a place to 
refuel. Are there many of these ships in the skies of the Earth? At the present time, there are six of them. Wow. How was the alien ship not damaged by the airliner? As I said, they have protective shields. Keep in mind that these ships are capable of amazing things. They can do, they can do huge distances. They can change dimensions. The technologies are far beyond human comprehension. Yes. So I take it from what you've said then. <laughs> They're never going to find the debris from the accident. No, the parts that were found were planted. They made sure that it, since it, their presence is such a secret, they made sure that parts of the debris would be found to make it look like they had, he had simply flown it into the ocean. Thank you so much, Fred, for joining us again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next week's Holy Week leading up to Easter. We're going to investigate the events that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus by channeling St. Peter, who will speak of the events of the Mount of Olives, Olives, where Jesus was arrested. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was present at the crucifixion, along with Mary Magdalene. And then we will speak, we will speak with Mary Magdalene and St. Paul, who saw Jesus after the resurrection. So if you join us next week, we will tell you all of the truth that concerned the death of our Lord. I currently have nine books on Amazon. My latest book, Messengers of God for a Modern World, consists of 60 messages that we channeled on our Wednesday morning podcast, A Weekly Message from Jesus. It makes a wonderful daily devotional. It's a great gift for a friend. The book's available in soft cover and as an e-book in both English and Spanish. Signed copies are available on my website, barrystrom.com. Thank you all for joining us on the Voice America Variety Radio Network. If you'd like to see more of our channelings, we have almost 420 videos, as I believe I said earlier, uh, on our YouTube channel. It's in the name of Barry Strom. Okay, I, I hope you enjoyed our challenge today. I know that it's going to take a little bit of understanding to think about what we said, but I assure you that's all true. We never have any ideas of what is going to come out from our spirits. So anyway, join us again next week. I hope that you will be there to hear all of the wonderful messages from the Holy Spirit that we're going to speak with, and especially you will have a live message from Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you have any suggestions for future shows, our email is exploringtheafterlife2023 at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our show and join us on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Spirit Speak, Exploring the Afterlife with Connie and Barry Strom. Tune in next week for another informative and inspiring episode on the Voice America Variety Channel at 9 a.m. Pacific Time.